ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It is Friday the 16th of February. I'm Sally Sara coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Israeli forces have raided the largest functioning hospital in Gaza, storming the Nasser Hospital in Gaza's southern city of Han Yunus. Hundreds of patients and staff fled the facility, but Gaza's Ministry of Health says some remained inside. For more, I was joined a short time ago by our Middle East correspondent, Alison Horn. Well, NASA Hospital is in Gaza's southern city of Khan Yunus. It's actually one of the few medical centres that's still operating in the Gaza Strip at the moment. Israeli forces say that they're carrying out a precise and limited mission, that's their words, inside the hospital. Now, they say that they have intelligence that Hamas militants have been operating inside the hospital and they also claim that the bodies of deceased Israeli hostages have also been held inside NASA. Now, there are more than 130 Israeli hostages still inside Gaza at the moment. We do know that some of those hostages have uh, died inside Gaza. And so Israel's says that they are trying to find the bodies of these hostages. Uh, Over the last couple of days, the army has been warning Palestinians uh, around the complex and inside the hospital to evacuate. They've been ordering them to leave, both doctors, staff, patients and also displaced Gazans that have been taking shelter at the hospital. And we don't know a lot about actually what's happening inside at the moment because so many people have left. But Gaza's Ministry of Health says there are still a number of doctors and patients inside. They say their lives are at risk, including children. They've described the situation inside there as catastrophic. Uh, Some of the remaining doctors have reported that the hospital has been shelled. Doctors Without Borders have also reported that the hospital has been shelled and that one of their colleagues has been detained. Doctors inside have also said that they are hearing a number of airstrikes around the complex, that there's constant gunfire and that they fear for the lives of themselves and the patients that are inside. Uh, This is what the Israeli army spokesperson, Rear Admiral Daniel Hagari, had to say a short while ago about why is Israel has launched this mission. We have credible intelligence from a number of sources, including from released hostages, indicating that Hamas held hostages at the Nasser Hospital in Khan Yunus, and that there may be bodies of our hostages in the Nasser Hospital facility. That's Rear Admiral Daniel Hagari, and before him, our Middle East correspondent, Alison Horn. So is there hope of a negotiated settlement to avoid a full-scale Israeli ground operation in Rafah in southern Gaza? Gershon Baskin is an Israeli peace activist and negotiator. In 2011, he was involved in negotiations with Hamas to release Israeli soldier Gilad Shalat, who was held captive for five years. I would say there's small hope, not not a whole lot of hope. Um, The Israelis are intent on moving forward. They believe that they are close to finding the Hamas leadership, which they intend to capture and or kill. And they believe that that would be 
um, sufficient in order to end the war. Of course, in order to do that, they have to invade the southern 20% of the Gaza Strip, where there's a million and a half Palestinians between the cities of Khan Yunus and Rafah. I don't know how they're going to do that. They're talking about evacuating the population. I don't know where you send them to. It's just a very um, difficult situation, and an Israeli ground operation or air bombing in this part of the Gaza Strip would be catastrophic. There has been criticism and warnings and deep concern from many members of the international community. Is that being heard within the Israeli government or are they determined to push ahead? I think it's being heard, but I don't think it's being considered with a great deal of gravity. Um, The Israelis are focused on the military objective of eliminating Hamas as the ruling party in Gaza and eliminating their military capabilities. The Israeli government, uh, and I think most Israelis believe that it's completely justified to do what they're doing, that it is an act of self-defense and it is a necessary condition in order for Israel to survive in this very dangerous region. I wanted to ask you about some of the domestic reaction within Israel. Obviously, there's been a lot of uh, pressure regarding the Israeli hostages who remain in Gaza. How is the government dealing with those domestic uh, pressures at the moment? Quite frankly, it seems that they're ignoring them. There seems to be a small majority of Israelis who believe that the Israeli government should engage in negotiations with Hamas through the third-party mediators in order to reach an agreement to release all of the hostages. There are still 134 Israeli hostages in Gaza. More than 30 of them are believed to be dead already. But a, a large minority in Israel believe that Israel should not negotiate a deal which would end the war bring about an Israeli withdrawal from Gaza and a a massive release of Palestinian prisoners, including murderers of Israelis, without finishing Hamas off. So there isn't enough public pressure on Israel, even from the families, to engage in a deal. And this is why we saw Mr. Netanyahu just uh, yesterday uh, refusing to send a negotiating team back to Cairo to continue the negotiations. They think that the military pressure will bring a softening of the positions of Hamas and enable a a negotiated deal that Israel could live with. What do you think about that decision? I think it's irresponsible and I think it goes against the ethos of Israel. And I believe that in negotiations, no matter how difficult they are, you don't leave the table. You stay there. You show your determination. You be creative and come up with ideas that can reach an agreement. That's Gershon Baskin there, Middle East Director for the International Communities Organisation. You're listening to AM, where it's 16 minutes past seven. The wife of Julian Assange says she fears for his life as he appeals against the decision to extradite him to the US. Stella Assange says her husband is in poor health. The WikiLeaks founder will have his last roll of the dice in the UK court system next week in a two-day hearing in the High Court. Mr Assange is wanted in the US on espionage charges and could face a sentence of up to 175 years in prison if convicted. Europe correspondent Steve Kinane reports. Stella Assange is not used to hearing good news. With her husband's health deteriorating after nearly five years in Belmarsh Prison, She has grave fears for what could happen next when the High Court hears his extradition appeal next week. But Stella Assange has told AM it meant a lot to her to hear this week that 86 MPs, including the Prime Minister, had passed a motion calling for her husband's release. It means everything. 
in a political case, if you don't have the backing of your own country, of your own government, um, you're done for. And this is really important for Julian uh, that the Albanese government has stepped up and said that Julian has to be released. How is Julian's health? Well, he's weak. Um, he's physically weak. Um, mentally, he's, he's resilient. Um, but obviously, this takes a, an enormous toll, and this is, we believe, to be it to be the final hearing in the UK if he loses. He will then be moved to the United States. The UK will move to extradite him. We know in other, other cases, the UK has extradited a person within 24 hours of a negative decision. In a previous appeal, lawyers for the US government said they could make diplomatic assurances to the UK that if Julian Assange was extradited, he would not be held in isolation in supermax conditions and therefore would not be at risk of suicide. Ms Assange dismisses those claims. These are not assurances. They are a license to torture Julian, Julian in fact. It doesn't stop the US from doing anything. It in fact says uh, that the US can choose to torture Julian if they deem it necessary. Over 20 human rights organisations and free speech groups, including Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch, have called on the US government to drop the case. Rebecca Vincent from the Press Freedom Group, Reporters Without Borders, has visited Mr Assange in prison. Our systems in the US and the UK are not supposed to, to be politically abused in this way. We're not supposed to see political prisoners. But yet we have a political prisoner sitting here in London in a high security prison. So that is the tension. Um, it is in the power of the US government to bring this to a close at any point. There's different ways that that could be done. I would hope that, as a matter of principle, the case could be closed. This is a country of the First Amendment. This is, frankly, absurd. That's Rebecca Vincent from Reporters Without Borders, ending that report from Steve Kinane in London. Donald Trump's first criminal trial is set to go ahead next month after a judge in New York rejected his bid to have hush money allegations thrown out. But a separate criminal case against the former president in Georgia is facing uncertainty as a court hears arguments to dismiss the lead prosecutor over a previously secret relationship. For more, I spoke with our North America correspondent, Jade McMillan. Well, Sally, this is the case in which Donald Trump is accused of falsifying business records over hush money payments made to porn star Stormy Daniels. It was the first set of criminal charges that were brought against him, and it looks like now that it will be the first that goes to trial. Mr Trump's lawyers tried to have this case thrown out. That didn't work. They also tried to argue that it was unfair for the former president to face trial during primary season uh, as he's campaigning for the Republican presidential nomination. But the judge in Manhattan disregarded that argument. He confirmed that the trial would begin on March 25th. Mr Trump spoke outside court. He reiterated the argument that he has made in all of his criminal cases. Uh, that is his accusation that they are politically motivated. Instead of being in South Carolina and other states campaigning, I'm stuck here. It's an election interference case. Uh, nobody's ever seen anything like it in this country. It's a disgrace. It's a disgraceful situation, actually. And we'll just have to figure it out. And Jade, what is at stake in Georgia? 
Well, Donald Trump is facing a total of four criminal cases. In Georgia, he's accused of election interference. And one of his co-defendants there is trying to have the person who brought these charges, the Fulton County District Attorney, Farney Willis, disqualified because of a relationship she's been in with one of the lawyers that she hired to help with the investigation. The accusation against her is that there's a conflict there, that she benefited financially from that relationship, partly because of trips that they took together that he paid for. Now, both uh, he and Ms Willis deny that. They insist that there is nothing improper here and that the relationship didn't start until after he was hired. But at a hearing today, one of Ms Willis's former friends, someone who used to work in her office, testified that that was not the case, that the relationship had already begun. Now, this hearing uh, that is delving into really personal details is being broadcast live by many of the major US networks. Farney Willis argues that it's nothing more than an attempt to embarrass and harass her. The consequence of it, though, uh, could be that if the judge does agree to disqualify Miss Willis, uh, she will have to be replaced on this prosecution. It will at the very least uh, likely delay the case and could even derail it altogether. That's North America correspondent Jade McMillan. Cracks are appearing in the economy with the unemployment rate unexpectedly rising to 4.1% in January with just 500 new jobs created. Economists who'd been praising a resilient jobs market are now less optimistic, raising pressure on the Reserve Bank to cut interest rates. So what are the risks of a hard economic landing or even a recession? I spoke a short time ago with our senior business correspondent, Peter Ryan. Peter, did the uptake in the jobless rate take some economists by surprise? Well, Sally, it did, and that January jobless reading really underscores the sharp rise in unemployment over the last five months. It was a bullish 3.6% in September, now 4.1%, 22,000 jobs lost in a single month. And the pace is faster than the Reserve Bank and Treasury thought. One immediate reaction yesterday from Commonwealth Bank economists was significant and somewhat concerning it as households and businesses slash costs after 13 interest rate rises since May 2022. And there's evidence of that pressure in the CBA's Household Spending Index for January, which looks at payments data for 7 million customers. Now, that rose modestly, but barely offset a crunch in December. Insurance costs are continuing to hurt, but people are spending up on gym memberships, maybe New Year's resolutions, travel bookings and cruises. CBA Chief Economist Stephen Halmarek told me the RBA will remain nervous about rebounding inflation, but he also sees a Taylor Swift bounce, but he's not sure even that will shake off what's possibly ahead for the economy as the greater risk of a hard landing looms. I'd put the you know the Taylor Swift concerts in the same category as things like the, the FIFA Women's World Cup and uh, we actually saw in the Australian Open in January. Uh, you know, these big ticket uh, recreation events, I think you're right, people are saving for them. They're kind of focused on you know, in, enjoying life and spending less money on, on other things. We can see that, you know, clearly in some softness in household goods, uh, household services, food and beverage. I also wanted to ask you about insurance because everyone's feeling that at the moment, massive increases, a big factor of inflation. Does that a worry for the Reserve Bank as they try to work out the timing to cut interest rates? Yeah, so on our data, spending on insurance is, is the strongest. It's up 11.3% year to January. And 
you know, I think as the Reserve Bank Governor has has pointed out, you know, those that services sector inflation, which they are, are focused on and, and worried about. But from the CPI data, both the quarterly and the monthly numbers, it does look like services inflation has peaked. But we'll need to see more of that through the course of 2024 for the RBA to be confident that they can start cutting interest rates. That's Stephen Halmarek there, Commonwealth Bank Chief Economist, uh, talking to Peter Ryan. And Peter, if the jobless rate is rising faster than expected, what else do we need to see for the Reserve Bank to cut interest rates? Well, Sally, we'll be seeing the official GDP numbers for the final quarter of last year in early March. Some economists see growth of just 0.2%, pretty much flatlining, which will worry the Reserve Bank. Overnight, by the way, the United Kingdom fell into a technical recession, a similar backdrop of living pressures and surging interest rates. What the RBA now needs to see is slowing inflation. It's now 4.1% but needs to be back into that 2 to 3% target band over time and that's when RBA Governor Michelle Bullock will be more comfortable in starting to talk about when to cut rates. Some economists see that scenario sooner rather than later given the rising jobless rate to avoid the risk of a recession but for now the RBA and Treasurer Jim Charles Farmers remain confident about a soft economic landing. That's Peter Ryan there. Well, more than 80,000 Swifties will head to the MCG tonight for the first Australian show of Taylor Swift's latest tour. The megastar arrived in Melbourne yesterday, fresh from a well-documented appearance at the Super Bowl in Las Vegas. Local authorities are anticipating an injection of $1 billion into Melbourne's economy. Oliver Gordon has been talking to fans. I'm feeling 22, everything. In every mood, I can find a song that represents my feelings. 22-year-old Swifty Ying Shen Wu has come all the way from Taiwan for tonight's show. This is my first time in Australia. 17 hours of flight up to, to from Taiwan to here and we transferred in Singapore. She was able to secure a ticket after taking on extra shifts as a tutor. I bought the VIP ticket. 600 or 700 Australian dollars, maybe, yeah. 26-year-old Brisbane Swifty Isabella has also come to town especially and is buying up merchandise outside the MCG. We spent $380 on the tickets and then for merch, we I just spent 180 Then that doesn't include flights or accommodation <laughs> or transport or any of that. They're among the fans who have made their way to Melbourne for the start of the star's record-breaking tour, the City of Melbourne estimates Taylor Swift will inject more than $1 billion to the city's economy. Her influence has even spread to academia. This week, Melbourne played host to a conference titled Swiftposium. The University of Sydney's Dr Georgia Carroll, the first person to write an entire PhD on Swift, was there. The academic, also a die-hard fan, says Taylor Swift's team has worked to build a strong community that's happy to spend. So if you purchase merchandise and you share your receipt online, her team will often retweet those posts and praise you. It is easy to be cynical, and there are days where I feel a bit cynical about it, but I'm also a fan myself, and ultimately it's just a really clever business model and form of marketing that has helped her become a billionaire. Dr Carroll, who first saw Swift live in concert 14 years ago, says there are Swifties across all generations. I would say that there's um, still this kind of idea that her fans are teenage girls, um, but many of her fans who were teenagers back when her career first started are now in their late 20s, their 30s, they have professional careers and families, and her music has kind of 
been on this journey along with them and um, remained relatable. Everything. I love her music. I love her personality. I love everything about her. <laughs> Friends Cleo and Grace say they're counting down the hours until they get to see their favourite singer, who they say is just really nice. I think I just like her because she's just like a good person. Like a lot of musicians are really cocky and rude. So I just think that it's refreshing to have someone who's actually nice. That's Melbourne Swifty Cleo ending Oliver Gordon's report. And that's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sally Sara. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. You've probably been seeing a fair bit of Taylor Swift's name this week. Yes, she's in Melbourne and she was at the Super Bowl. But perhaps more intriguing is her role in the upcoming US election. Today we look at why Trump supporters are so willing to believe conspiracy theories that she's in cahoots with the White House. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listener. app.